Hey guys, before we get started, we wanted to tell you about Tiller, a time tracking project created by our friends at Joan in Melbourne. You might remember Nick Hallam from Joan way back in episode 21. Tiller is a new approach to time tracking using software and hardware. They're launching a Kickstarter on September 19th. Check it out and get early access at gettiller.com. Now, back to the episode. Welcome to episode 56 of Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn Tracy and with me, as always, is Matt Leach. Hello, how are you? I'm pumped. We are pumped. <laughs> Let's do this. There's certain people that you uh, follow when you're in college, I guess. Right, and women. Um, <laughs> designers <laughs> and that you, you have a chance to talk to over time and you follow their work and then you finally start a podcast uh, and... If, and have them on. So two and a half years later, <laughs> get them on. We have Mark Gowing in with us, uh, who founded and run uh, Mark Gowing Studio uh, from 97. 97. Wow. Nice. Mm. Uh, Preservation Music founded that. Yeah, 2001, I think. And Formist Editions. Uh, about two years ago. Yeah. And also, probably where I want to start with is recently, maybe three years ago, mm. was made a member of the Alliance Graphique International. Yeah. There's not many people in Australia that no, are members. We're getting there. Yeah. There was, how, a, there was a nice little flood this year. Or, was or last year, I should say. Last year. Right. Um, there was about five new members last year from, right. from Australia, which was pretty awesome. So um, for everyone who doesn't know, like it's, it's a very exclusive. You have to be invited by someone already. Yeah, the local member will put you forward. Or it doesn't have to be local, but it's usually local. And then you apply. You, you put together a portfolio and you submit and they, they, wow. they judge you. Yeah. You get judged. I feel judged. Yeah, you I, feel get, like, I feel like a student kind of graduate portfolio, but yeah. you guys have to go through that. It's really, it's like the most nerve-wracking yeah. thing. So it was nerve-wracking. Yeah, it really yeah. was. And most people find it. And there's some people who just go, yeah, it's cool. And they just do it and they get in or they don't get in. And they, they don't subscribe that heavily. But most of us feel like a, an amazing pull to it. And, yeah. um, and it's really flattering. And primarily, it's just incredibly kind of flattering. And they're your peers, and they're 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 the people that I've studied my whole life. Yeah. That's who's there. And and I, for them to kind of invite me in is is kind of mind bending. And so yeah, I took it pretty heavily. Mm. And I'd looked toward that my whole career. You know, you have little milestones that you think one day I might make that one. Mm. And you know, you know, you hope and yeah. Yeah, so it was kind of special because it was definitely some sort of bucket list stuff, you know. And he dropped the mic and he left. <laughs> Brilliant. So who nominated you? Are we allowed to know that? Or do you know um, that? It was, yeah, it was David Lancashire, oh, which wow. is special as well. That's David's, fantastic. David's a giant, you know, and mm. that was really awesome. <laughs> cool. Awesome. And, so what, and so what do you have to do as part of... Oh, you, you don't have to do anything. You have to spend quite a bit of money. Um, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not cheap. And then you can go to Congress. They want, you, they want you to go as often as possible. If you don't go to Congress, then they will begin to frown mm-hmm. at your, in your general direction. They don't do much about that. They'll just frown. <laughs> and, and so you, you, go, you, you go to Congress and Congress is pretty awesome. Like it's sort of... You know, depends on what part of the world it's in. It's a different city every year, and, and depending on where it is, it's a different kind of different group of people and a different quantity of people. But it's no matter where it is, it's an amazing group of people, mm. and that's 
that's to have access to have sort of every day-to-day social access to those people is really amazing because mm. there's no there's no um there's no hierarchy at AGI mm. or RG or whatever people want to call it yeah. you can just walk up and say hello to whoever you want there's no there's no out of bounds once wow. you're in there it's you can talk to anybody so you can make yourself known to whoever you want to make yourself it's known a safe to. environment it's yeah and 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 there's sort of this unspoken thing where no one's no one's going to be a dick yeah right and so everyone will talk to you everyone will be cool to you and be nice to you and tell you their stories and wow bend your ear and it's pretty awesome who's, who's was there some was there somebody there across the, across the room that you sort of saw from a distance you had to eyes met yeah you had to put your mojito down and <laughs> oh there's plenty of people who kind of you know make you stop we really really excited who was the most that you think you're really excited about, we'll I, was, about I was really excited to get to know Lars Muller actually because mm, okay. Lars Muller's a, a bit of a, a hero of mine for a few reasons mm. um, but there's plenty of people outside of Lars as well but I mean Lars is he's a phenomenal designer he's a phenomenal publisher mm. um, and that was that was pretty fantastic and it, I met him at a time when I was just beginning formist and I needed to talk to someone like him perfect timing perfect. Yeah. yeah so it was great and you're actually learning practical things from these people oh absolutely oh everyone's really generous wow. everyone's everyone's completely generous there's no there's you know everyone's just there to chat about what they do and share and it's very kind of much a group of peers just kind of sharing that and it's that's what it's for that's what it was created mm-hmm. for it was created for these guys who by these guys you know in the what 50s who felt like they were a little bit peerless and mm. They, they knew they had peers around the world, but not next door. And so they decided they would meet every year and have, have these peer discussions and share these stories that, that they didn't get to share daily, you know. So they would get, they started the AGI and they'd get together and just hang out. And that's all it's for. It's hang out and be, be with people who are like-minded, who are, have like experiences. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of students out there who just added it to their bucket list <laughs> oh, i hope so it's because it's it's a way to it's a really lovely way to raise quality because it it gives you a gauge yeah it gives you a very strong gauge and for me the big leap was gauging myself based on kind of how i'm received locally mm. to to gauging myself on how i'm received internationally or at not even just internationally by by all designers which is one thing that's a really excellent thing in itself but also but by a group of peers who you admire, you know, who you, you look up to and gauge yourself on their standards, that really lifts you, you know, that makes you really work harder and really look at yourself harder and look at yourself differently. That, for me, it was a huge shift in my whole mm. process just to have that and then go home and think, all right, everything's different now. I have wow. to, There's a different measure now and... All the comfort sort of washed away, you know, and all the sort of, even though it should make you feel more comfortable, but no, it made me feel less comfortable. So just suddenly the world just got so much bigger, yeah. standard in your mind. Yeah, the world got bigger. Yeah. Um, standard had to get better. Mm. Reasons for doing it changed. Because then you're no longer doing it for that peer admiration or that peer recognition because you've got it. Right. And so then the reasons mm. shift and it becomes more about doing it back to doing it for the original reasons you know the right reasons because you know the thing about it the career is you get swayed along the way you're human and you get mm. pulled around and you you get admiration or you whatever you get you don't get admiration whatever it is that comes your way or doesn't come your way affects what you do and why you do it and inevitably you can lose 
you can lose sight of the real reasons to do things, mm-hmm. you know, and the real reasons to be good at graphic design, well, the, all those reasons. And you can get, I, I'm as guilty of it as anyone. I got kind of pulled around and you lose sight of what's real. And this helped, I think. This helped and for other reasons. It sort of ended a lot of desire for me and got me back to the doing it without desire. Designing without desire. In a way, I'm trying to figure that out still, but yeah. I feel I feel like that's what it is. Mm. Like I no longer reach for those that admiration anymore. Yeah. And, and when you get a little bit, you start to. Well, I did start to kind of kind of chase it. You want, yeah, a little yeah. bit. You want it. Yeah. You know, you kind of want it. You like it. It's nice when people like what you do. It's lovely. Yeah. It's really warm, and mm. you want you want to feel that. And I, not that I don't want to feel that, but having that having that fine very final kind of large amount of of accreditation i guess sort of mm. puts my mind at ease and makes me not need to seek it, it makes lets me go back inward and look at what i do and how i want to, how i want to do it what's right for me did that change your motivation at all yeah yeah it has it has and it's the reason why i've it's the reason why everything's changing at the moment. Mm. Like I've got formers happening. I've got new businesses happening, new processes happening. Mm-hmm. My whole workflow is changing and has continued to change for the last few years. And pretty much you can date it mm. back to RG, I think. You so you've can, got these milestones that are very clear. Yeah, I think that starts... Like I always had those things in my head. Like mm. oh, I should start working with our clients and be self-generative. And I... I knew I wanted to do it, but I hadn't begun doing it. And I think RG helped me begin Mm. because like I said, it sent me back to what I wanted rather than what Mm. my industry might expect of me or what I think my industry might. Because a lot of it's not what they actually expect of you. It's what you think they expect of you, which is quite (laughs) distorted and probably a bit paranoid. Is that part of the reason for the change in the name? Because it used to be Mark Going Design. Certainly the the idea of being self-generative, yeah. Um, for me, there's 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 a need for the studio to be able to produce, um, well, to be able to work in spaces that aren't necessarily deemed as design, and and that's a really foggy thing, yeah. and yeah. I don't really know how to even express that yet. But I just felt the need to open the the, the conversation, um, to take the D word out, and let other words in, you yeah. know, when they come. And it's already beginning. I mean, we. one of the things that's been really evident is just by publishing our own books and behaving as a publisher and an editor mm. outside of a designer because there are they're different roles. Um, we, when we make books, yeah, we act, me and everyone else in the studio, we act as designers on those books. We act as creative directors, but we also act as editors and publishers and salespeople and marketing mm. people, and, all those roles. Fans. And fans, absolutely, yeah. mm. but it, it broadens the, the 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 kind of output of what we do, and the the D word mm. <laughs> design no longer really cuts it. And yeah. by removing that, it's not really for anyone else but me. Like I don't expect a client to look at, at the name of our business and say, "Well, they're designers," or "Oh, they're not just designers," because it doesn't say design. But it allows the studio culture to know that we are capable of other things, yeah. and we. Mm are open to other things and we consider ourselves in a broader sense yeah and it was mainly for my own sake you know and also you know i'm beginning to 
I've begun as sort of a, an art practice that hasn't come to fruition yet, but it's in the works and I don't really know what I'm doing. But certainly having the word design involved in my business name, which is my own name, it's all tied up in the same identity. It's hard mm. for me to ignore. It's about 80 threads that I want to kind of pull out. Yeah. Like, everything you just said then. Yeah. Yes. But, but so that's all tied up in that. Yeah, sorry. That's it's all tied up in that business but... change, that name change, mm, because... Yeah. All of those things are now happening and I can't because it's if it was a, if the business name was, you know, a, something that wasn't my name, then I feel like I could just leave it. Yeah. But because it's my own name, it's my own identity, then it, I need to I need to broaden that to allow myself as my own personal identity to be broader. It's nice that it has an evolution as well, that, that kind of I think, you know, as, as it changes as mm. you change and as yeah. the studio changes that, that the name why, why should the name stay the same I think that's exactly it mm. it's just that change you know, time things evolve mm. it's simple in, in that sense yeah so we uh, you mentioned art there yeah <laughs> um, so this is, this is something that I really wanted to talk to you about in fact we put it in an email yeah you know, we've, had, we've had email conversations we've about it <laughs> we've had off the air conversations about it you know and we're not expecting you to answer this, this question with a yes or no um, but I've always been interested in where you kind of put your, yourself and your mm. work and the work that comes out of your studio in my mind I see you on this tightrope between art and design mm. a lot of the time I'll just leave it with that any thoughts on this at all uh, it's really it's the stickiest ground i and i do have opinions on it yes um but it's i don't feel like i have an answer a definitive one and i don't know when i will or if i ever will but certainly in my work in the in the past i've employed what you might deem as sort of art practice to create images or to create parts of what is then used as design Hmm. and I've always looked toward artists for, for guidance in how to make things like as much as I do designers. Like I probably study art as much as I do design and I read a lot. Like I have a lot of books and I, I'm a bit of a sort of study. That's how that's part of my practice is study. And I think that study involved has always involved art as much as it has design. Hmm. So I am really influenced by certain group of artists and that, has had an impact on my work and and how I go about it. And some of the work I do is flat-out graphic design. It's typography and it's grids and it's communications. But Mm. then there's elements of it that that is not, that comes from another space. And and it's it's hard to define. Is Is it illustration? Is it design? Is it art? Or is it just making is it just image making or mm-hmm. means to an end and i sort of began to think of it as just that a means to an end i need to get it to feel this way and look this way and have a have a, have the audience respond in a certain way so this is how it's got to look and so that's what i need to go through mm-hmm. and that's just how i looked at it for a long time um and then that journey for me uh, a few things came to a head at this sort of a similar time where on one hand i was making a lot of funny, strange things for record covers or for hopscotch films. Is, yeah, I was going to yeah. say what's an example I've of made, hopscotch Yeah, stuff. I've yeah. made sculptures for hopscotch and we've photographed mm. them and I've made sculptures for preservation music and we've photographed them, but I've also made have some pretty kind of strange ways of making images. I take a lot of photographs myself that aren't really communications photos. They're not, you know, 
pictures of things for graphic design they're more kind of expressions and so all of these things are going on at once but then at the same time I've always had this typographic practice that's quite expressive I've always just reached for that type of typographic practice to expand and progress and part of that has been about minimalism and reduction and yeah real restraint a lot of restraint involved and I guess it's rigorous I guess you'd call it but that journey took me to an end point where the type I began making was no longer type and and that's weird right that's really difficult (laughs) to to as a for a graphic designer that's very difficult to quantify mm. yeah. and to to ex, to make excuses for as well. Because some, some of your work, it seems like you push it to the ex, as far as it can yeah. go and then just bring it back enough that well, it's I, legible yeah. or, you know, depending so, on the brief, yeah. Yeah, exactly that. I've had to bring it back here and there and, mm. and I still do and, and I know where the limits are mm. um, and limits are different for different cultures and different clients and we work those limits depending on projects. But I also felt like I... I didn't want to bring it back. Yeah. And so I reached right. this ceiling. I reached this, the ceiling of what I could do within a graphic design space, What's what I could moment? call communications yeah. and know, knowing full well that what I was making was illegible and kind of useless. And, you know, what a lot of designers would call indulgent or, you know, personal, whatever they want to call it. But for me, it's a personal journey. And regardless of clients, I'm on that journey because for me, it's a personal creative journey. And while I am a professional practitioner, I'm also a human and I also have my own my own point of view and my own wants as a as a creative person and I don't let I try not to let what does what clients need from me to stop me from being on that adventure mm. and I guess that's what art is I guess that's what art is it's mm. you just do it for the sake of it you do it because you need to do it you do mm. it because you want to do it there's an inner thing that makes you do it mm. and that's how I where I feel like it becomes art and that's my definition of it. So I made a very clear decision. I was very conscious of it at the time that I wouldn't stop at the ceiling, that I would keep going. Right. And I would keep making th- that work beyond what graphic design needed or allowed me to do, what communications required. So now I'm making typographic works that are useless in terms of any kind of design communications Hmm. but they're still expressive and they still come from me they're very personal to me and they're i guess to me they're art but to anyone else can make up their own mind as to what they are but that's where that that's what and that came about at around the same time as after i'd made all of those sculptures and things and it all just sort of came to a head at the same time Hmm. and it became too hard to ignore (laughs) <laughs> Great. Well, for someone that says they don't have an answer, that was a really bloody good yeah. answer. <laughs> <laughs> but I still don't know. I guess what I mean by I don't have an answer is I still don't know where that goes or how that fits. Uh, how yeah. does those pieces of the puzzle go together and how do you practice that, all those things at once? I, hmm. is, is there a different yeah. feeling? So a lot of designers talk about this. Um, one of the big graduate kind of learnings is being able to put out your work out, out there mm. and look for kind of like feedback i guess yeah um does that change when you're a, you're doing a piece of art yeah <laughs> yeah you don't want any feedback <laughs> i really don't want to know what anyone thinks i'm too fr- i'm too frightened like right. um, please don't say you hate it um i would have thought it would have almost been you've built up this 
amazing way to kind of convince people of or, you know or, or to take on that you could kind of go through that ceiling more often I'm than the, uh, the rest of us mere mortals. I don't know. I'm slowly learning <laughs> the the kind of art ways to communicate your mm. ideas because it's a different thing. Like I first thing I first thing I do when I write, you know, when you do a piece of design, you sit down, you write a rationale. Mm. You need to be able to express what it is. You need to be able to communicate to the client what they're paying for and and you write a rationale. And so I make a piece of what we'll call it art. When I make one of those pieces, you need to write a rationale because whoever's showing it, they want one. Hmm. And it's and they I write them and they sound like design rationale. Oh, right. <laughs> and I feel like an idiot. You know? <laughs> it, does, it just reads really badly because I don't I haven't written art rationales before. Yeah. I just write a design rationale and it just sounds way too logical. And... <laughs> And kind of, it's like it's making excuses for itself because that's what design rationales do. Yep. They, there's excuses for why, not excuses, but definitions of yep. why everything is there. Everything has a reason to be. You're answering. Yeah. You're answering the question that any client or any other designer yeah. might ask. But, but in, in rationale, yeah. Right, but, in, in but in art, you don't need to explain why things right. are the way they are. You can have a reason for doing something, but you don't need to explain it why everything's there and what everything does. No one's going to say, well, "Why is that red? Can you change it to orange, please?" Like, <laughs> yeah, it's. <laughs> you don't have to make those excuses. So. It's a different way of thinking about your work, and I have had to. I'm learning that, and it's mm. been really weird for me. <laughs> I'm getting there, and certainly writing those rationales help yeah. to define what you were saying to define to people what it is you're trying to do. As far as whether they like it or not, or how they feel about it, I don't really know. I'd love for them to like it, like we all want that. You know, mm. you know as a human, I'd love for people to like it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah. so them liking it is a nice to have. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. And can I ask? I don't know if you, um, are you writing the rationale for the art- artistic projects? Is that something you do before you begin? <sighs> sort of during? starts during. Yeah. Sometimes it starts with. Well, my work always starts whether it's design or, or inverted commas art. Sure. Um, they start the same way. They start with a lot of notes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Notes, then drawing. Yep. And then sometimes more notes. And so generally when I get to the end of one of those pieces, there's already a lot of notes. So the rationale might be mm. half written. But then you've got to look at it again and kind of say, well, all right, that was my way of getting there. Or well, where have I actually ended up? Mm. Yeah. And then sort of clarify that a little, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and it kind of evolve, can evolve a little bit with the, with the work, I suppose. Yeah, that's what it I mean. sort of sounds like you sort of, you know, kind of take something and break it apart, put yeah. it back together, break it apart again. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. That's pretty much it. That's, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> can I, can I, I wanted to clarify. So you talked about doing a lot of reading and I know you do a mm. lot of reading. How do you fit that into your, because you're clearly busy. Mm. How do you fit that into your day? I do, I don't. Um, <laughs> Most of what I do, I don't fit into my day. Mm. It's all outside it, like not all, but is it my day is long, I guess. There's a lot of nights, there's a lot of weekends. It always has been. And I sort of tried to not do that, but it just comes back. And mm. it's just like, I guess I'm at peace with it now because I know that it comes with doing what you want to do mm-hmm. and having that, that absolute privilege of living the life you want to live where most people have to get a job that they want mm. or that they don't want I should say that they need um, I've got the privilege now of running a studio where there's people there who do work and I do a certain amount of it but my life is a very privileged one and I love what I do 
you know um so therefore it's not such a drag anymore to spend a lot of hours working or studying or whatever reading whatever Mm. it is so generally day-to-day nine-to-five is communications time work time on projects where you need to communicate with clients and service providers outside of that so nights are often drawing note-taking times Mm -hmm. and font drawing times (laughs) (laughs) lots of typefaces at night um i mean that can be done in the house at the table on Mm. on the sofa you know that doesn't have to be at the desk so that frees up and same with the reading that can be done on the sofa and Mm. in the bed (laughs) i've just i've just been taken back to um dave foster talking about designing a typeface in his sleep and waking up and going oh that works (laughs) yeah dave is dave never stops yeah (laughs) so i i I guess off the back of that though i mean when i heard about preservation music Mm. i was kind of like how's he finding the time for that yeah i had where did that come from that was came about because i spent a lot of the 90s working with record labels yeah and when i first started the studio a lot of my clients were record labels because i was at before I started the studio, I was at Rolling Stone. And I was on other magazines yeah. in that company, and then I finished up on Rolling Stone, but I only worked on Rolling Stone for six months. By working there and around those people, I had made a lot of record label contacts. Anyway, get to the point. So I was working with Sony, EMI, yeah. Virgin, Universal, Warners, plus a lot of indies, and directly with bands. And I can't recall really doing any good work. Maybe one, maybe one or two. And by that you mean work that you're proud of? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It was grueling. It was tough. Mm. It's a really tough world, that music industry. It's probably even worse now because there's no sales anymore. I mean, this was a CD period. Yeah. We're doing CD covers. There was no digital music. And it was tough. It was tough going. It was... You had to be cool. You had to go to the parties. Because it's funny. It's kind of you had to go to the parties. Yeah, it was a lot of bullshit. Yeah, there was a lot of bullshit. And, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. a hell of a lot of bullshit. And you knew you had a use-by date. That there was always any moment now there's going to be a cooler guy. Right. Comes along and, and just gets the work off you because yeah. he's cooler. Wow. Hopefully a cooler girl. That would have been better. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that you always feel like under threat and... Because it's funny, cause graduates, I think, are still looking towards that as being one of the, the top jobs. Like Music? I'd, I'd love to, like, design for... I grew up wanting to design for yeah. music. Yeah. I mean, that was... I just... That was... The people who got me into graphic design were Vaughn Oliver and, mm. you know, Peter Saville, Neville Brody. They're the people mm. who got me in. Mm. And uh, that's what I wanted. I love music. I have, I've spent my whole life besotted with music and listening to music and it's a huge thing for me but i guess i came out of the 90s with not much to show for a lot of work in the music industry a little bit to show for it but not a lot and i have an old friend andrew kaduri who is a a brilliant music mind at the time was in the same place as me he just finished working with i think shock records he worked for a lot of labels he's he worked as a journalist for rolling stone as well as others he also worked as a label manager and a band manager for different bands and different labels. And he was disgruntled and I was disgruntled. <laughs> <laughs> we felt like we didn't have much to show for our years in music and our love for it. And along came this record that Oran Ambachi made, a, this amazing Australian artist named Oran Ambachi made a pop record 
it's not real pop record. It's sort of an avant-garde pop record. But he, we knew him, and he didn't have a home for it. And we just, Andrew and I, just looked at each other and went, "Yeah, let's do it." We just kind of read each other's minds. I think at the time, I remember it happened very quickly. Mm. I don't remember exactly what was discussed, but we just decided we would do it. And and we just blundered into it and made a hell of a lot of mistakes. <laughs> and, and then took a few years to recover from them and, and then got it finally, eventually we got it right. Mm. And we started doing really nice things. But yeah, it was tricky to fit in, but it was a real priority for me because it was where I was doing all my learning. Mm. It was where my design practice was growing the most because it didn't have a client. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that's the biggest, the first time I really learned about that that sort of self-motivation as a designer and when you're self-employed and you're not relying on a client to tell you what to do it's kind of huge because when you first start doing it your knee-jerk reaction is for someone to tell you what to do Mm. because that's what we do We, we need a brief we need a reason and we need a criteria and so the first few records with preservation i actually without even consciously doing it i went to the artists and got a brief and criteria. Right. Oh, right. And I made what they wanted. And I hated them. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I wasn't happy with them. I didn't make the, my best work. Mm. I made what they needed. And I, I practiced the way I've always practiced. And I spent my own money on that. Mm. You know, because right. they weren't paying us. We were paying for the production of the records. And the design component was like a part of our service to the artists. And so I basically just threw my own time at what they wanted me to do so then we had to kind of come up with a new contract for signing artists that said that if you sign with us then we we make your record cover we 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 do it and you get you get what's given we get creative control Mm. and you get partially what you're given i mean it was never Mm. whole it can't be whole wholly that way because you know they it's their identity that's on the line so so if they have a real aversion to it then they could they could pull the plug yeah but it was certainly you know it was certainly not any control on their part and mm-hmm. there's a few artists who refused to sign which was fine with us we mm-hmm. saw that as a way of sort of sorting it out before it's too before, late before yeah, yeah absolutely um, yeah and there was most were really great and really really grateful and excited mm. and we had really good times because they were like what are you going to do and we would just <laughs> i would make something and they'd be yeah thanks you know and <laughs> everything was rosy it was very few times when there was actually a problem so you yeah, i just learned a ton about mm. providing a service and making a uh, making a result without a criteria it's kind of hard mm. whole um, new skill set yeah yeah and it was a great growth period so i was really excited to be working on that stuff i worked on it night and day we just made it work. We just fit it in wherever mm. we could. I've noticed lately you're doing um, uh, cassette tapes. Well, that, I'm not. I'm no longer a partner in the label. Oh, right. So I left the label in 2010, mainly because digital music took over. Yeah. And I didn't feel relevant anymore. You know, I, when you find yourself throwing away your own CDs. Yeah, it was exactly that. It was exactly that. Like I did throw away my own CDs. And I have an enormous music collection, but I got rid of most of it. Yeah. And it just takes up space. And here I am throwing out packaging while I'm making packaging. Yeah. I just felt like a bit of a hypocrite. And so um, I handed over my half to Andrew. He still runs it. Mm. And he runs it how he sees fit. And I still make work for him. There's a little bit more of a criteria as a result because I'm not a shareholder. But it's still really good fun. 
you know, work yeah. with a friend and we make he makes beautiful music and I get to work on it and it's really nice. Yeah. But if he's going to make tapes, then he's going to make tapes, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, so I, occasionally I make some tape packaging. Yeah. That's just <laughs> Which pretty is kind wild. Of, it's pretty surreal, yeah. actually. <laughs> they're making a comeback. They're making a comeback. Well, yeah, they're <laughs> by the hundreds, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so that kind of leads me on to, I guess, the record label, hmm. the publishing house, I yeah. guess, Formist Editions. Is that, yeah. is that a, an obvious kind of evolution or is it? I guess it feels obvious to me. Yeah. Yeah. It feels almost a bit cliche to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, no, no, no one's buying records anymore. I'm going <laughs> to start books. It's certainly... Yes. And then the Kindle came well, out. <laughs> no, one's, no one's buying books either. Um, <laughs> can tell you that. Um, we, the, the approach to the books was... I wanted it to be very similar to the approach to preservation. I wanted it to be a, like that bubble that I could work in and without a criteria, with my own criteria, I should yeah. say, and and make things the way I saw they should be made. But the hilarious thing was that I made exactly the same mistakes <laughs> as I had made 15 years before right. with, with preservation. Um, so going to authors and asking for a brief? And- well, no, just just kind of listening too much to what other people thought the book should be mm. and making their version of it, which ended yeah. up just sort of making working with them as if they were a client, even though they weren't. You know, just working with people as if they were clients and not really driving, you're not taking the lead. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that a couple of times. I, I made a few errors. And then there was a bit, of, I think I was a bit, looking back, I feel like I was a bit conservative and I don't really know what caused it. I honestly don't. Yeah, I, I feel like the first few volumes, are they're good. Um, there's nothing wrong with them, for sure. But they're certainly not... Um, they're not astonishing mm-hmm. um, and that's what I always want to do and that's not always what you do when you're trying to make something astonishing and that's a big ask but you want to hit it occasionally or you want to feel like you got near it you know not that I ever think oh yeah I made something astonishing <laughs> but I want to feel like I'm getting somewhere near it on my own for my own standards you yeah. know that, that I've done something more than what I've done prior and I don't yeah. think that those books we made early on were anything more than I had done prior so you just subscribe to the idea of you're only as good as your last kind of piece of work? Oh, absolutely. That kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I feel that way every day. Wow. Yeah. I judge myself purely on what I've done yesterday. So if it's something that I had done years before, that's someone else. Hmm. Yeah. I remember oh. when I first heard about Formist and someone um, sent me a text and they said, oh, it's about this, and which I think is off your website. And they had carefully considered books for lovers. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Trickled wow. out at that point. And then I, I just scrolled down and said, of art and design. Oh, oh, perfect. <laughs> love that. Books for lovers. That's like, beautiful. Where's, where's Mark Goldell? <laughs> yeah, look out. <laughs> <laughs> but what's, what's the process and the criteria of, uh, you know, are you approaching authors? Are you producing? Um, yeah, we're approaching practitioners mainly so right. the the criteria of a formist book has gone through a lot of changes over the last couple of years and it, it's continued to evolve and i've continued to push it to evolve and, and and a lot of that evolution has never even been seen by anyone it's not that we publish something and then evolve from that publication it's that while we're working on a publication it causes us to evolve and mm-hmm. so 
there's books that we have in the studio that we've been working on for more than a year and they've gone through several iterations because we keep well i keep reinventing what it is we're trying to achieve right and by by reaching using these books as a vehicle to reach for what it is i'm trying to achieve i learn that that's not it and i start again on that book Mm. rather than finish that book and let it suffer for the problems that it has or that i think it has i just fix it and and delay it and do it again because there's no there's nothing at stake and the thing about books is especially the kind of books we make they're not they're not really kind of time-based anymore i think all of the pressures on books that used to be on books anyway are mostly gone so books used to be about information they used to be about documentation and Mm. used to be about timing as a result so Mm. if it came out in that period then you would get it just as the people needed it and people would buy it because they wanted to know about that thing that art that design whatever it was now you can find out whatever you want on the internet so books are a luxury books are a a gift either for yourself or for someone else yeah. but either way yeah. that I see them as a gift you're buying yourself a present if you're buying them for yourselves so as a result they need to be they need to be um, a really engaging object they need to be an experience and it's a really cheesy way to put it but mm. that's what it is and so now I think that I think that it's the main issue I have with the early volumes is that they're not really an experience they're mm. nice they're good books yeah. But they're not an experience. And I think now it's like, now we're trying to make experiences. Now we're trying to make books that reach something tonal, um, that are nice to hold, that are lovely objects. They're almost they're almost industrial design in some cases. Um, and you're buying time, I guess. You're buying yourself time to sit and appreciate that. Yeah, and as a result, it doesn't really matter when they come out. Mm. It doesn't matter if we... we call them late because the public don't see them as late yeah you know it's just needs to when it comes out it just needs to be good so when it's ready yeah, yeah. and that's what we're and look i don't even feel like we've hit that yet mm. to be honest I, I feel like the volumes we've made are great and the, the recent one etoc the daniel etoc book we just released is mm. is a definite step in the right direction but i think we're getting better as well well i think that book's really good i think the future ones are better and i, I hope to always feel that way i think that's that's what I'm trying to do is like I said earlier what you're doing now has got to be better than what you did then yeah I don't know how to measure that or who measures that so I just measure it myself yeah so it seems like you work the opposite of um was it Khan Academy quote um shipped beats perfect you're kind of like perfect beats shipped nowadays yeah I I used to work like that a lot like part of reason why I have so much work in behind me i guess in my portfolio is that i was i am really capable of just getting it done Mm. and getting it done at a good standard every time at a reasonable standard each time so i can just sort of pump through it and i always take if i'm making a poster or something i'll finish it and send it rather than finish it and then come back and look at it tomorrow and re and rethink it Mm. and worry Mm. the moment I feel like in, when I'm in the moment in the creative moment when I'm making and I feel like yep finished I'll send so that I can't reconsider yeah. okay. and that just causes me to move on mm. the problem with that is that with, with a book it's a far bigger production there's so much time involved and money involved in production and that you you, you can't afford to just do it and send it because then the proofs come back and you have that moment where you look at the proofs and say, oh, I've got to do all this again. <laughs> and then you're spending more money. 
But if it's a poster, you just do it and send it. And there's no, there's no moment where you rethink it. It doesn't take 10 weeks to produce. Yeah. It's printed overnight and it's gone. And it's fine. And it's also just a blip in time, something like a poster. You know, it's a blip in time. Whereas a book isn't, a book has this sort of eternity about it. Can be passed on. Yeah, and I love them for that reason. Like, that's one of the things I'm drawn to. I'm drawn to the longevity and the the kind of object making of it. And, but it also slows me down. It makes me work in a different way than I used to work. It stops me from just sending it. It makes me reconsider and reconsider and reconsider. And can it be better? And are we going about this the right way? Do we Mm. need to look at our entire practice and rethink it? And that's what's been going on. Mm. And that's why the books aren't coming thick and fast. <laughs> and so there's multiple projects as well? There's multiple there's books? five projects. Carefully considered, that's what you said at the start. In, yeah, <laughs> probably too carefully at the moment. I'd like to speed things up. I really, really would. I'd like us to, to hit a point where we produce a bit quicker because most of what's on the table right now has been suffering from me continually re-evaluating what, what it is to make a formless book mm-hmm. and why and how, you know. And so I think it'd be really nice for us to hit a point where we know what that is confidently and we can roll it out a lot quicker. I think everyone would benefit from that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so everyone in the studio works on kind of... This sounds silly now that I'm saying it out loud, but everybody in the studio works on everything that the studio is producing? Sort of. Is that that, that even a question? No. Yeah, it is a good question. Um, it's not entirely true at the moment and it's hard to sort of know exactly where that's going to go. We've got two new staff, junior staff members, um, but that was via a very extensive um, application process. Right. Right. Like the, it was crazy. God, I'd love to know. <laughs> I, remember, I remember seeing one of your um, ads for a job, it must have been quite a few years ago, and I've written it down somewhere, you had... On the personal attributes and the professional attributes you had at the top, good manners. I always have good manners. Really? Wow. I always do. Yeah. What yeah. happens if you don't put that in? Do you find that you have talented assholes coming through and knocking on the oh, door? Oh, you have them anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they think they're well-mannered. You know? <laughs> the point of it is for me is that they know coming in what the studio values are. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it's always interesting to find out when you ask for good manners what somebody's version of that is. Mm. That's, uh, that's, for me, that's what it means. It's always, that's fascinating, mm. you know, but it, it, I'm, I think manners are really important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're and, very polite. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to know what are the what, top level? What are some of the other things? Do they have to do some sort of design obstacle course? No, Is there don't, a, I don't do that. No, I, I think it's kind of interesting, but I think it's pretty evil as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, I, it's about personal fit a lot of it mm-hmm. i find that when you get to the top and there's sort of you know a few candidates there might be five candidates or something and they're all really good and it just you could hire any of them yeah but it comes down to um who fits the best it's cultural you know it's personalities and culture and their feel for the kind of work we do like their personal feel for how they do they see culture the way we see the way i see culture mm-hmm. do they see the world the way i see the world do they look through similar a similar lens mm. yeah that's what it comes down to in the end um it's tricky and i get it wrong all the time yeah and i get it right often as well we've had some amazing people work in there yeah but yeah i feel like it's it, i'll get excited by having 
the young people around learning i quite like it like uh, it sort of charges me up and i see them learning and i can see them getting charged up and it's very hands-on in the studio it's very everyone gets taught things and mm. everyone shares their knowledge and i get taught things by them as well you know and we all share kind of thing um yeah it's good yeah, cool so what's next for formless traditions so get more books shipped <laughs> yeah so next up is a book by paul garbett oh wow yeah it's only a it's a small illustrated volume well it's not a small volume it's a small sort of con- small amount of content i think it's 12 plates um 12 color plates it's about totals like 32 pages or something like that but it's it's a big hardcover because it's all duplex bound wow so it turns into this massive sort of fat hardcover cloth bound object <laughs> and it kind of glorifies these 12 illustrations that are absolutely stunning like paul's really stretched himself and hit a new high i think um and they're all about they're all a reflection on last year oh, they're wow. a bit of a meditation hmm. on last year so the book's called year of the monkey uh, and we're only making 16 of them. Wow. Yeah. So, 16. Yeah, 16. So this is About a new... A million this dollars is, each. Yeah, they're a million dollars each. <laughs> <laughs> this is a part of the new, the new way of looking at Formist is that we're going to, we're going to be making more artist editions. Wow. So cool. s- small numbers, higher prices, but like lavish productions or or appropriate Mm. productions to what the content is about Mm. um but certainly artist editions small quantities so do you only make 16 Mm. and then you get one so there's only 15 well we make a few artist proofs yeah (laughs) it's it's 22 in total i think paul wanted a few artist proofs yeah um artist proofs are worth more than that anyway so it's you know we can auction those later on (laughs) (laughs) um we be off air you Mm. kind of mentioned to us that you're also and what i was leading to before was you're also trying to design typefaces a a new original typeface for each for every book yeah oh it's just a crazy undertaking that is crazy well it won't won't always work i know that it won't always work and then there'll be times where you wait where we wave it when i say no that's pointless we've got a book that we've just begun working on um about the work of Chris Sowersby for Klim Type Foundry. Wow. And I know I'm not going to design a typeface for, for, for <laughs> yeah. that. Like, uh, I'll look crazy, you know. <laughs> it's, it's crazy talk. So, yeah, we won't be doing one for that. But, yeah, there are, the books that we're working on for artists and things like that, a part of it is to try to design a typeface to, to use in that book and then to sell on the Type Foundry. So we've split the business in two. We have foremost editions formist foundry ah. and formist editions are the books and the objects and the posters and the prints and there's a lot of there's also art prints and art editions and things like that and the foundry is purely type foundry and obviously they're slightly different marketplaces yeah. but they do feed off each other which is kind of the pleasure of it one one feeds the other and that we are creating typefaces for the foundry that are kind of separate to the books mm-hmm. they don't they don't exist in the books but we're also creating typefaces for the books that then trickle down into the foundry and it's it's partly the idea that that um to create a typeface personally i need a i need a reason mm-hmm. i need i need a use for that right. you know i find that's why i find people like chris sowers be kind of amazing because chris can sit around day after day after day after day drawing just endless typefaces like his library is just massive and 
he can do that without a criteria. He can do that without any a need. He creates his own need, which is what we were talking about earlier mm. with that self-motivated workspace. And it, it's phenomenal. But for me, I, I find that hard to just sort of sit down and come up with a typeface without uh, if something for it to achieve a concept. Even if it's, it can't be, it doesn't need to be a client outcome. It can just be a concept that it needs to kind of ex- execute or communicate or, or even just a tone that it needs to kind of fulfill, if you like. But so then the working on artist books has been quite interesting because when you make a book for an artist, it's very hard to kind of fill that book with your own voice. Yes. Right. Because it's about them. And, and I think that's been the problem from the start is that you, you quite often when you work on art books, you end up making a nice handsome volume that carries the work. And it, it's like a museum. Mm-hmm. You, know, you make a nice handsome set of white walls to, to put work in, on, mm-hmm. on or in. And um, that for me is a bit of a dead end. Mm. So the type became one of the things that we could definitely have a stronger effect on and it becomes a bit of a call and response sort of process where the artist is making the call by via their art mm-hmm. their process and we make a response via a typeface wow and so it's not it's not a, it's certainly not us trying to reflect their work no, no, in, a, no. in a font right or or sort of capture the feel of their work in a font it's a response to their call it's okay you say this and we say that we see that we say that mm, yeah you know and so it's it's a it's a creative response is the way we look at it because otherwise if we're just trying to package them in a font it would be kind of gross and almost <laughs> impossible in some cases yeah. so it's been it's been pretty successful so far i've got to say um we've got a book coming up in the next couple of months for Stephen ormandy who's a he's the founder of dinosaur designs oh right. and he has a cool. he has an art practice of his own um, he paints and he sculpts, and we, well, Elliot, Elliot's Bryce folks, who is a designer in the studio, a senior designer in the studio, and he's working on that book, and he created a typeface as a response to Stephen's work, and it's wild, you know, it's crazy, it's beautiful, and it's it's really unique and unusual. Um, but the beautiful thing is there's not a lot of pressure at that level. You know, the, the essay in this book is 1,500 words long. And while that, work, that writing is very important, it's not a corporate document. Yeah. It's an yeah. arts document. And we just need someone to be able to read it, just read it, you know, mm-hmm. but only just. <laughs> so we're, 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 I'm really willing to test those boundaries. I know people will hate me for it. I know some people will think it's shit, and we pissed off that it's. They'll call it illegible. They'll call it mean. You know, they'll think it's selfish. They'll, they'll they'll call it a lot of things. But for me, it needs to happen. It needs to happen for us to progress. It needs for, it needs to happen for us to be able to contribute one way or another. Mm. If Formus doesn't do something like this then there's not really any way to contribute. You know, there's plenty of publishers out there making beautiful books and there's plenty of designers designing beautiful books. And I'm just trying to have a voice and trying to make Formist into something that is unique yeah. and, and has a space. And that's one way of doing it. And it certainly creates a tone for, the, for a book like Stephen's that it sort of sets a different tone for reading his work. Whereas if you use a nice sans serif typeface and make a polite grid and then 
put the paintings after that. It's all, it's the same old tone. It's the tone everybody yep. knows. It's an yep. environment that everybody knows how to read art in. It's an existing environment. It's a known quantity. And I don't, I can leave that publishing to somebody else mm-hmm. is, is how I feel about it. And so the one that's come after that is um, a book for a local artist named Gemma Smith. And Gemma, she's been practicing for quite some time and she's got work in, in all the major institutions. She's very astute. And, and again, I made a typeface for this book um, as a call and response. And I call it Boulder. She makes a set of, she's made a set of works in the past called, that she calls Boulders. Right. Boulder. She, cool. the, so the typeface is called Boulder. And what's well, called Boulder Mono, actually, because it's monospaced. Right. And it's just, you know, it, it, it's a, a very much a response to her process. It doesn't look like her work. No. But it re- it responds to her work and it works as a like a partnership with her work. Mm. So it's a nice way for us to make partnering mm. work with their existing work. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it, it's so exciting for me to hear you talk about this. You're so passionate about yeah. this. Like you have this little glint in your eye yeah, when you're talking about it. It's, it's like, the fun thing at the moment. It is the so fun exciting. thing. Yeah. It's just a really fun thing to do at the moment. But it's also sort of terrifying. <laughs> you know, because it's a big yeah. ask and it's a lot of work. And boulders turn into a family of ten cuts. Right. Boulder Mono will have 10 cuts. It's nearly finished. It will be out in a couple of months. Wow. And, and so, it's, yeah. it's turned into... A, I've never made 10 cuts before. You know, I, I've only ever made one or two. So suddenly I'm kind of making proper families and it's a ton of work. Yeah. <laughs> I so mean, I these, guys, these guys who make typefaces, they work hard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, had, we had a long talk with, um, with Dave. With Dave. Yeah. <laughs> that one. yeah, we did. Yeah, and mine's monospace, so there's no kerning. Right. You know, I can remove kerning from that equation. <laughs> but if I had to kern it as well, and that's what's next. I mean, there's a typeface coming up called Capital that is probably another 10-cut family, sans serif, and will need kerning. Wow. <laughs> and so, yeah, we're, we're entering into a pretty big space. That's mm. And it's all new to me. I mean, I've been designing typefaces for about 25 years, mm. I think. But... Only at a kind of graphic designer level. Yeah. You know, only at a level where I required it. So quite often the typefaces I designed wouldn't even get out of Adobe Illustrator. They'd be handset, you know. Yeah. And then sometimes they don't even get off a piece of paper. (laughs) But then sometimes they do make their way into font software and I I kern them and make them work. And there's been a number of fonts that I've done that with, but not... Never families and never at a saleable level. Only yeah, a, like a commercial level, yeah, giving it to another designer to no, use. No, never. Yeah. Only at a level yeah. where we would use it internally, mm. you know. And then you, if there are kerning issues, you can just fix them on the fly. Yeah. You know, I've made plenty of fonts where there's, they're, they're, they're nearly right, but they're not quite right. <laughs> and so now the, the, there's been this impetus for me to step up and make them work properly. And that's been a really nice thing to learn how to do. Mm. And I by no means would call myself finished in learning that, but... I'm certainly ready to release. Yeah. It's certainly at a level where I can release things. And, and, you know, you can always rely on friends and and professionals to help you with with your shortcomings as well. So people like Dave Foster's been, he's there, it was a huge help. Great. Yeah. Wow. Super, super exciting. That does take us to the end. Does it? Of the episode. Should I plug the URLs? Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so that was, that was the next question. Um, oh, okay. Where can, where can people find out more about... Um, Formus Editions, the Formus Foundry, every uh, single URL you have. Okay, so <laughs> is the Foundry, is that linking right back to your grandfather? It sort of is, yeah. Um, 
you know about my grandfather that's lovely mm. so he was he he studied sign writing for a I really for you as well. yeah well just for a really short period of time he was kind of we were very similar him and i i don't have any um formal design training and i've always been a bit sort of i don't want to i don't want to um, go to school i just want to work Mm-hmm. And he was very much the same. I know where I got that from. And he he went to a he went to a sign writing class a long long time ago, and they taught calligraphy and sign writing. You know, and he went for a week, and he copied all the fonts down off the wall, all the type styles off the wall, and got taught how to hold a brush. And he copied them all into his book, and he never went back. <laughs> he just used that yes. that was as it. his template and then taught himself that was it yeah. and he never worked as a commercial sign writer or calligrapher but he worked in retail his whole life mm. he, was, he ran the first Woolworths in Australia he managed it oh, wow. and he ran businesses with, a business with my parents it was a garden centre and he spent his whole life in retail and the whole time he spent in retail he would handwrite all the signage cool. every day he would, you know, sail on tomatoes. It's probably, incre- it's probably incredible at it. Yeah, he was, by the time, I remember as a teenager watching him do it, and he was amazing at it. He, oh. would just, he would just kind of get out his poster paints and a bit of board and write a beautiful sign and go tack it on the wall, you know, and I would oh. just sit there and watch him. And he was the one who told me what design was. He was the one who told me what typography was. I grew up in a country town, and so I didn't know what design and typography were. I had no exposure to it at high school they told me that I could be a mechanic or you know (laughs) choose one of these standard things and certainly design wasn't on the list um so that was a revelation for me and I just from that moment on I just wanted in you know Mm. and and it was really interesting that when I got involved I got a job I got out of school and I got a job I got I got hired as a as a trainee at Scholastic Publishers Mm. so I spent my life in publishing as well but as soon as I got in there and I found out what design was for my art director and he started feeding me magazines and books to read and I started reading Upper and Lower Case and Baseline magazine and then it became later on Emigre and mm. as soon as I kind of started reading all that stuff I just started drawing type. That was the first thing I did. Mm. As soon as I read about people drawing type I just decided that I was going to draw type. But I've spent, while I've spent my whole life doing that and my whole career doing that I've never done anything about it commercially. Mm. So this is, starting the foundry is massive for me. Like it's Mm. sort of a, it's a lifelong dream. Mm. You know, I I remember doodling at the age of like 22 with doodling like my logo for my tie foundry. Yeah. Uh, on my sketch pads and stuff. Did you get that out for the... <laughs> for the no, they're not, they weren't called formers. Let's just use this one. This would be fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, did, I did this one in, in, in 1992. <laughs> it's ready to cousin age today. Cousin age today. Um, all right, that does take us to the end of the show. Yeah. Um, so uh, where would you like people to point? Let's find out more about uh, you online. Okay, so the, the, the Formist Editions is formist.co. Yep. That's CO. <laughs> um, and and there we sell all of our books and, and art objects. And formistfoundry.co is the type foundry where you can buy the fonts. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. Yes. Thank you, guys. Thank it's been you. a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure. And Matt, where can people find you? Uh, Instagram, Matt underscore Beach. Yeah. And I'm at Flynn Tracy on pretty much everything. And you can find this episode of more at ausdesignradio.com. 
And you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud at AUS Design Radio. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys.